This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance, we help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206 842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206-451-4220. I'm Maria Metzler, the Executive Director of Helpline House. The global pandemic has affected us all differently. If you or your neighbors need food assistance, mental health counseling, rental assistance, or parks and rec vouchers, please reach out. Helpline House can help in many ways. Find us on the web at helplinehouse.org. It's what we do. Neighbor helping neighbor. Additional support comes from Sound Reaper Graphics at soundrepro.com. Their phone number is 206-780-9678. Go to them for all your printing needs. Support also comes from Island Hoops Basketball and More. You can catch them on Facebook, SoccerGoalShelter.com. Soccer Goal Shelter's new product, the Slim Shade, is the most efficient and economical sports team shelter on the market today. It is lightweight, compact, and assembles with ease by one person in less than two minutes. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. your host with the most, Tiny Tim. What's cracking, Podcastville? You found the Bystander Podcast. Today, my guest is Dave Vitale from Starward Whiskey. How are you doing, David? Pretty good, thanks. Pretty excited to be here. Yeah, I love your man shed. I think it's a great concept. Um, in all things fair and equal, I think you need to make a she shed for your lovely wife, Holly. Well, it actually started off as a she shed for Holly and um, once the pandemic hit and I was kind of um, housebound, she generously suggested, probably forced me to move out to the now man shed to, to work from. Yeah, well, you got all the essentials, plenty of bottles of whiskey up there. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some whiskey or some books up on the shelf nowadays. And um, yeah, whiskey everywhere, always within arm's reach, you know, like I've got bottles here on the desk behind me. I'm sorry, did you just grab a Bushmills? No, it wasn't Bushmills actually. It was a Johnny Walker Black, which is yeah. like an amazing blended whiskey from Scotland. It's so one you're of my inspirations. Cheating on yourself there, huh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, a little. Like, I mean, I love whiskey spelt both ways, Tim. So, like, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's from Scotland, Ireland, America, Australia, Taiwan, Japan. It's all great stuff. Um, so, so David is a CEO of a whiskey company out of Australia. And also my new neighbor, which is also makes me, makes me think that you're going to be shortly uh, listed as my favorite neighbor. <laughs> because you uh, make the whiskey. But um, little known fact, we lived in Kentucky when our son was born because my wife worked at the University of Kentucky in that hospital and the labs around there. And I was introduced to the bourbon culture and horse racing and the massive loads of religion and flatlands and Appalachians and a lot of different things. But the bourbon culture is has a great history in Kentucky and some of my friends that know me from Seattle call me Kentucky lucky because of that uh, bourbon connection can you tell me what inspired you to get involved in in whiskey creation yeah um a few things actually like um a little known fact is that basically whiskeys around the world are really just beer is all grown up it's a bit different for say bourbon where it's a corn mash but you know when you're talking about um single malt whiskies um, which predominantly come from you know um scotland originally uh they're, they're, they're all um effectively uh fermented grain mashes using malted barley which is what we use to make beer and i had a really big um affection for beer i was an avid home brewer and actually wanted to set up an organic microbrewery but um good beer doesn't travel well as, as we know that's why we've got so many great local microbreweries and um i kind of had a few things in the back of my mind not, not the least of which was that you know my wife grew up in the pacific northwest and if we're ever going to keep my mother-in-law happy by coming back here I needed a product to sell I needed a job and and a good job would be um, selling selling booze um, it's a pretty lucrative market over here so um, beer kind of got struck off the list but um, I seen, you know I then discovered whiskey and just understood that all the things that I loved about craft beer could exist in I guess at that point in time it wasn't known as such but craft whiskey as, as well so from a love of beer um my um affection for whiskey grew because growing up for me it was two whiskies that i knew you know it was basically at uh christmas we used to give our accountant the family accountant a bottle of shivers regal scotch mm -hmm. and um growing up in melbourne um, melbourne's kind of famed for lots of things but it's um it's it's also the largest um population of greek people um outside of athens in the world so 
I had a lot of Greek friends growing up and their dads uh, used to play cards at their Easter and um, Johnny Walker Black would be on the table. So Johnny Walker and Shivers Regal, really all I knew about um, whiskey growing up. Um, bourbon has since become huge in, in, in Australia. In fact, um, while Turkey's biggest market outside of the United States is, is, is um, Australia and um, we drink a lot of bourbon, mostly in cans. Um, you know, really? ready, okay. ready to drink cocktails, yeah, ready to drink with cola. Um, but there's a lot of bourbon drunk in Australia now. But growing up, it was mostly um, Scotch whiskey that I knew. But that was what my dads and their dads' friends drank. Not something that I was interested in. Um, I was way more interested in beer and um, and wine, for that matter. Um, so when I started Starwood, it was originally going to be a, a microbrewery but it's in turned into a whiskey distillery. A neat thing in, uh, that you do that I found out in Kentucky was you use a process where you use wine barrels and as your casks to add more fruit flavor to your whiskey. In Kentucky, it's a little different. They use the whiskey casks to ferminate, ferminate is that the correct word? Ferment. 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 Um, they're beer in whiskey casks. So yeah. you have this bourbon beer that I have yet to find anywhere else that was absolutely delicious. It was really good. So um, if you, there's, there's a few um, microbreweries around in Seattle that are sourcing barrel from some of the craft distilleries that are local, like um, Westlands down in Soto um they've got they've got a partnership and you can get like a barrel aged i think it might be a stout or a red ale that they've um so they've basically aged whiskey in the barrel taken the whiskey out put it in a bottle and then given that barrel to a brewery to to then um age their their um beer in for some time so you get a bit of the whiskey it's a really strong boiler maker basically mm -hmm. um so we do a bit of that like um experimentally but yeah, the thing that kind of sets us apart is aging our whiskeys fully in red wine barrels, which is quite novel. Like um, we've kind of made a name for ourselves around the world doing that. Like some distilleries, typically like in Kentucky, it's brand new American oak. Every barrel yeah. um, is used once and once only. And then um, that's it. So, you know, all that colour and you know, intense sort of oak characteristic that you get in bourbons and sweetness, in fact, comes from the barrel because they're charred within an inch of their lives. When you look inside the barrel, they look like alligator skin. It's really quite um, charred. And so that sort of caramelizes the tannins and lignans in the oak to make it sweet. We don't do that. We, we, we use uh, Australian wine barrels. So these have spent four or five years at a, an Australian winery the wine goes out and the whiskey goes in for the full aging period. And so what you end up with, as you pointed out, Tim, is a really fruity whiskey, um, but also a whiskey that's um, <clears throat> aged in oak in a very different way to, to Scotch whiskey and, and Irish whiskey and, and whiskey from the United States. So, um, you know, for me, it's like these whiskeys have done a great job of doing what they do. And if we were going to be in the sharing cabinet at home, I just wanted it to be with something that was distinctly us, you know, that talked yeah. to the place that it was made, just like Kentucky whiskey does, right? So, um, 
you know, aging in wine barrels using local uh, wheat and malted barley to, to, to create the um, spirit that goes, the white dog that goes into the, into the barrel is really important for us because I think all great whiskies, you know, talk to the place they're made, both in terms of ingredients, but, you know, as you pointed out, the culture too, right? Yeah, and thank you for the bottle that you sent to me previously. Um, I would share it with the audience right now, but it is long gone. Um, and it was delicious, but I didn't find it kind of like the the bourbons that are mixed with honey and such, where it was like candy flavor. It was still a true whiskey flavor. It wasn't, the sweetness didn't dominate my palate. And I, f I found that refreshing and rewarding and very, very smooth stuff. Um, with that said, I've only sampled one of the line, so please send more. <laughs> Um, also, thank you so much for joining me with a bike ride around the island today. That was, that was a lot of fun. It's kind of weird that uh, we're now in our, our man sheds um, just across the street talking online. <laughs> it is a bit, isn't it? Yeah, uh, well, oh. the time we live in, like a lot of my days spent like this now talking to whiskey clubs and, um, you know, interested kind of journalists or um, buyers in retail stores about you know, Australian whiskey, which is kind of foreign. Not many people know about it here, but I have to say the curiosity and the interest and the feedback that we've gotten for the whiskey over here has been, you know, overwhelmingly positive and, you know, it pumps my tires up. Well, I'm so far away from home, right? Everything that I've kind of established, sometimes it can get quite like um, isolating, just being, you know, setting something up from scratch in a new country. But having that feedback, that positive feedback from people that, you know, this is actually quite delicious and totally get what you're doing. And, you know, that idea that there should be an Australian whiskey in everybody's whiskey cabinet at home is a little closer to being real, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, because you don't, you don't think of Australia as a whiskey haven whatsoever. It, no, no. As an American, I don't. Well, you know, um, and a lot of Australians don't either, you know, like, you know, Scotch and bourbon have done such a great job of really dominating the market. Um, we had, oh, you know, for um, over 150 years, in fact, we've been, this is an interesting tidbit, right? Like Australia has been making whiskey more continuously than America has, because you had the prohibition period, right? I mean, legitimate whiskey. But like Buffalo, Buffalo Trace was making it during Prohibition and it was much like the marijuana um, aspect now where you just needed a doctor to give you a script that says, hey, David, I think you're suffering from lack of whiskey. Here's a subscription or a prescription for Buffalo Trace. Um, I did see Wild Turkey Distillery when I was in Kentucky. And it was basically out in the woods and it looked like a prison. Yeah. So, and in Kentucky, a lot of people think that's, that's a low end whiskey in, in a lot of ways. And I, th I think it's from the thought process that it hasn't evolved. Like you, you, you're bringing in a different craft to the flavor and the branding and, and such. And, Wild Turkey is like 
a turkey out in out, out in the woods all by itself, right? And and it it's not smooth going down. You know, I love my scotch. I love my bourbon. The stuff that you make is very smooth. Um, yeah. Well, um, thought, I guess. Yeah. Look, I mean, like I said, I'm I'm a huge whiskey fan. The the interesting thing about wild turkey is actually owned by an Italian company called Campari. Um, no, but really? it's still family run. Like, you know, Eddie Russell and Jimmy Russell have been running that distillery for like 60 odd years, father and son, you know, um, they make a, a, a step up uh, product called Russell's Reserve. It's a 10 year old bourbon. And to me, that's kind of like one of the best uh, bourbons in the world. I've been to the Buffalo Trace Distillery. I've been, you know, our... Um, our sales agency in, in Australia. So we have um, an agency that kind of like takes care of our sales force. And um, they also represent um, Sazerac, which owns uh, Buffalo Trace. And so like, I'm really familiar with their whole family of, of whiskies, which is um, great, but Maker's Mark, Wild Turkey. Woodford um, Reserve is another good one out of Kentucky. Yeah. Um, there's Angel's Envy that are aging in port wine barrels as well, which is quite interesting. Mm. They, they age in um, brand new American oak, and then uh, after a while, they empty the, the the contents of the barrel into a, a port wine barrel, which comes from Portugal or, or sherry from Spain. But you know, we we love the fact that these Australian wine barrels mean that you know, like all of what what you're drinking is. Is um is from from Australia, which is pretty exciting. But I love um I love I love American whiskey. It's been something of a bit of a revelation to kind of um, discover it in in the United States. I have to say, like we get all of the big brands. There's a few of the smaller ones are coming along, but you know the craft scene here is also booming. I've got like a kindred spirit. I mean Westland in in Seattle, amazing whiskey. Wasting whiskey. Bainbridge Island Distillery makes the best weeded whiskey in the world. Like, um, so we we um, enter the same competitions, and so they pick up. Um, we we have a um, a double grain whiskey, which is basically a weeded whiskey, like Bainbridge Island Distillery, and a, um, a single malt whiskey put together, and um, so we call it double grain. So we picked up the award for best. Uh, double grain whiskey in the world and they picked up uh, best uh, whiskey for single grain whiskey in the world. So, you know, um, kindred spirits all around um, the Puget Sound, which is fantastic. And I just love the fact that, you know, you don't have to go for the, for the big boys to get quality um, value for money whiskeys anymore. You know, and that's something that excites me. Do you find the whiskey industry competitive or supportive? Supportive. Like, I think for the most part, you know, certainly in Australia, we have this view that a rising tide lifts all boats, you know, so mm. if, if we're doing well, then that's going to be great for our other distilleries. And, you know, if we start fighting for drinkers amongst ourselves, we're kind of missing the point. The bigger audience is bourbon, scotch, Irish whiskies, which, you know, um, we could just uh, um, spend years and years like, uh, stripping shreds off them and they'd still be very, very profitable and we'd be very, very profitable too, right? Do you think that's because they have hundreds of years of uh, history behind them and you're somewhat new? It's not so much the the craft, it's more of the branding? It's a bit of both. I mean, you know what? Like, um, 
you know, I, and I'll show you, you know, I showed you a bottle of Johnny Walker Black before, which is sort of like the one step up from the entry level Johnny Walker. It's about 40 bucks ish. It is by like, I mean, it's had six distillers running that, sorry, six blenders, I should say. So it's a blended whiskey. Six blenders in the in the 200 year history of that brand. Um, so it's not just the might of a multinational company that does great marketing in Formula One and golf. That's part <laughs> of it, of course, right? But it's also that there is um, serious craft that goes into creating those whiskies, and the you know the integrity behind that craftsmanship is is inspirational. It's an inspiration to me. I've had the fortune of trying some Johnny Walker Black from the 1940s, the 1960s, the 1990s, and today. And you can thread a needle through it, Tim. Like that, such is the consistency of that product over those years. You know, it's, of course, the cork in one of them had tainted and you needed to kind of look a little bit beyond what that had done. But they're really, really, really consistent products. And to have six blenders over those 200 years, I'd argue that that's equally as uh, a well-crafted product as any artisanal, you know, small startup brand is, you know. Um, they've just got an unfair advantage of, billions of dollars and incumbency right but we've got an unfair advantage of like you can still talk to the founder and you can um have an intimate connection with the distillery and the people behind the brands so i think that the craft spirit scene generally whether it's gin vodka whiskey rum has its own advantages and that's that you can kind of develop a, an intimate connection with the people that make the spirits in a way that those large brands you just can't but to argue that they're of lesser quality just because scale gives them a price advantage in some instances is right, but not always. Yeah, but what do you think? That's well said, but what do you think about, you know, you, you said threading the needle over decades of time. So is aged whiskey 40 years any better than a 10 year? Oh, good question. Yeah, so what I meant was basically it was 12-year-old whiskey, but um, in a library stored for all of that period of time so that you could do a horizontal sort of tasting of the same product from a different era. So it wasn't 40-year-old, 60-year-old whiskey. Okay. It was all 12-year-old whiskey. Whiskey, once it's unlike wine, once it's in a bottle, doesn't really age all that much. You know, you do get some oxidation from the bottle if you keep it for for quite some time, but I've never had that problem of, uh, you know, it changing, it sort of finishes before before the change happens, but glass is in it. And um, for whiskies, they don't really change once they're in glass in a way that wine still sort of evolves. It's part of the cellaring process. Um, but, you know, we, we have a view that age is just that, it's just a statement of age, right? Like it's not really talking to quality but just time in wood and you know Melbourne my hometown's kind of famed for having four seasons in a day so we can have upwards of 40 degree Fahrenheit shifts in temperature within an afternoon if you watch the Australian Open or the Grand Prix you'll see it happening before your eyes where the the roof and the tennis center gets closed because there's a thunderstorm outside and then it opens and like it's uh really cold or you know like so there's different sort of um diurnal ranges <laughs> Rolly, Rolly, Rolly. Yeah, this is COVID time. Sorry, can you excuse me a second? That's good. We'll, we'll talk about it. 
This is COVID times. This is what bi- podcasting and uh, Zoom meetings look like nowadays. We're in a man shed. David's got a dog. Life is happening all around him. What uh, happens in like? Same thing happening here. The same thing happening on CNN, ESPN. Life interrupts. And Life interrupts, new, exactly. This is the new normal. We're going live and uh, <laughs> there he goes again. There's a dog fight outside David's man shed. Good time to take a pause and say, hey, support BainbridgeStrong.com. You can buy coffee and t-shirts and support the Bystander Podcast through Bainbridge Strong and all other small businesses and creators that are struggling through this COVID time. We'll be back, right back with David Fatali. CEO and founder of Starward Whiskey from Small interlude there. So yeah, we were just talking about age statements on whiskies. And you know, I think that in in old world whiskies like Scotland, where the temperature rarely changes, age has an influence because it needs time in wood to become more of the whiskey that it needs to be. But modern distilleries and and um, modern approaches to to making whiskey and places where whiskey is made mean that age is less of a relevant factor. There's very rarely you see a bourbon with an age statement like on the bottle, right? Like it's just it's four years of age. Four years in a day makes it a um, straight bourbon. Any any younger than that, you need to have the age on the bottle for all whiskies in the United States. And you know we're proudly three melbourne years you know that's kind of what we say it's it's aged for three melbourne years and anyone that's been to melbourne will know that like we have this amazing uh diurnal range it's called like a huge temperature range that can be up to 40 degrees fahrenheit every day and um that change in temperature means that the barrels are working harder than they would in scotland or in kentucky or seattle for sure right so um um, in three years, we can get a really smooth, easy-drinking whiskey that actually, if we left it in the barrel for 10 years, you know, would just be completely unbalanced and over-oaked, you know? Okay. Yeah, because, I can't, you know, in my early 20s, I grew up in a French restaurant working there, and I was fascinated by the Salmonier and scotches and ports and aged wine uh champions wine still around in seattle right now emile namad and uh jacques verreau with the chef and the wine guy and it was a very classical um white table presentation so i kind of grew up thinking that age was a selling point um until i found out the sommelier had never drank alcohol alcohol (laughs) life so it was all a big lie um, I now see boxed wine, canned wine, just a bastardization of everything I be- believed in 30 years ago in my French upbringing there. So what I hear you're saying is age doesn't necessarily make whiskey better at a certain point. How long have you guys been, uh, is that a fair statement? And yeah, it depends where it's made, right? Like you need eight, 10, 12 years in Scotland to age a whiskey. Anything less than that, and it's going to be like really fiery and un, unbalanced whiskey, right? 
in Melbourne or Kentucky or Seattle, it's going to be different to Scotland. And that's just a factor of the climate because that's what ageing is about is, you know, interacting with the environment to, you know, mellow the whiskey out. But is it just like GMOs with uh, vegetables and stuff? Is there climate control in these areas that can make a consistency to the aging of whiskey? Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we don't climate control our environment because it would just be way too expensive to do that for all of our whiskey, right? And, in, you know, to the point I just made, it's, a, it's almost a selling point to age it in its natural environment. So those people, um, you know, very quickly after you sort of discover whiskies from other places like Taiwan, I mean, that's a tropical place, right? So, of course, it's going to age a whole heap faster than whiskies do in Melbourne or, or anywhere else. Mm -hmm. So I, I noticed that there's a trend with uh, vegetables now where they age the vegetables during the transportation. Right. Have you seen that as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so they're, they're, um, they're picked off the vine still right. And the transportation actually makes ripens them up. Right. They put a chemical agent in there to ripen it upon delivery. Yeah. Uh, that's weird. <laughs> yeah. It wouldn't work for whiskey. So how long has Starward been around? We started um, uh, in 2007. So we started the, the whole journey in 2007. Um, the first barrel of whiskey was um, put into the into our bond store like the the, the Rick house in 2010 and then we launched in 2013 and Tim those dates also relate to the ages of our children they were all born in those years yeah. so I said to Holly before we start exporting we need to kind of put an end to this trend because otherwise every new market might mean a new child so I quickly put it into that. <laughs> That's funny. Um, what made you actually take the leap into this career? Yeah, so I was, um, this is my third business. Like the first business I had was in IT. It didn't really do all that well. The second one was um, another tech business that did fairly well. Like it was um, in e-learning of all things. Like had I stuck it out for 20 years, I'd be sitting on an island. Well, actually, I am on an island right now. I'd be sitting oh. on, a, on, a, on a tropical island uh, drinking pina coladas, I think. But um, it was an e-learning business. But it was, it, this was in 2000, from 1996 to 2002. And so, you know, minimum specs were dial-up modems and all sorts of things. It was very, 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 very early on. And um, I sold the business. Um, to my business partner and then decided to start the distillery after that. It was just something in me that said I wanted to make something tangible as opposed to something virtual. Do you have an exit strategy from this corporation? Um, yes and no. Like, I mean, there's a lot of work to be done before I kind of think that my time's over, you know, from that perspective. So in terms of my involvement in the business, I don't know that that's going to be anytime soon, but you know, funding a distillery is a pretty difficult. A whiskey distillery needs, you need deep pockets to start a distillery. Um, 
because uh, you're laying away whiskey that you can't sell, right? Like it's just yeah. sitting in, in there for that period of time. And every year you, you grow, you've got to put more away for three years time. And so we've been basically doubling our sales year on year. And so that means my capital investment doubles year on year as well. And um, so we sought some capital about five years ago from a, a group of investors. And so they're looking for a payday at some point, but they're very patient and, you know, we'll, you know, what that looks like still remains to be seen, but, you know, like for the moment, I'm just loving the opportunity to kind of get out into the United States and build a, build an Australian brand from the ground up. Like not many come, not many people from Australia get to do that. So it's pretty, pretty special. Yeah. It's awesome. Um, that's why I, I think we call them angel investors, right? Because they really come to the rescue and they're patient and uh, they're flush like that. Do you have any angel investors that say, hey, I want a, the Bystander podcast whiskey separate line or what, whatever like that? Because I know like Maker's Mark will set aside a cask for certain people. And I know some of the wineries here on the island will say, hey, David's wine. Shout out to John Rose and his debauchery wine. But that's, that's a single investor getting a small portion, kind of just to say, hey, guys, I got my own wine. Um, do yeah. you entertain any of that stuff? We do, actually. So we... we um, it's a couple barrels, you know. Well, and tell me about your... What, what do you call it? A tap room or whatever in Australia where the, people come the in tasting and, room. Yeah, the tasting room. Tasting so, room. Yeah, so we've got, we've got uh, a program called the Single Barrel Program. So you can buy a barrel of whiskey and have it labelled for yourself. So I don't know, maybe when, when, you, get a, um, when you get a million, um, million sort of subscribers to the podcast, maybe we can... We, maybe we can Go to the distillery as celebration and and pick a barrel. Hey, I'm way past that, man. Don't have to worry about that. <laughs> it, Let's do it. Well, you know, I just got to get my mom to tell more friends. <laughs> so talk a little bit about the method and the maturation process. And, you know, we, we were on the bike ride and we kind of touched on recycling and composting while we were talking on the on the ride i'm curious to know what you do with all your mash good question so all of the mash after after we've um so we 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 consume about five metric tons of barley a day malted barley a day and, and grain a day and where do you so store that that's i'm gonna like so that's uh, one one ton of barley is basically three feet by three feet by three feet if you could kind of Oh, that's pretty small in my estimation for a ton. That's a ton, yeah. So, yeah, maybe a bit more, maybe three, four feet by three feet by three feet. But anyway, you, that's sort of like a pallet, you know, like something that fits on a pallet, a cube. Okay. That's right. So we go through five of those a day. So, yeah, by Kentucky distillery standard, that's small. But if we, you know, to put that into context, if we were a microbrewery in Melbourne, we'd be the biggest. That's how much malted barley we use as a as a microbrewery. And you know, I dare say that a lot of the breweries in Seattle would struggle to kind of make that much as well. Like you use that much barley on a daily basis. So we, we go through a fair bit of um, 
malt to make our whiskey into a beer that we then distill. So that's the, the first part of the process is that um, we mash in malted barley, we ferment it and then we distill it. That um, spent grain, so the process of mashing is effectively making, you know, if you can imagine some oatmeal and then straining all of that sugary sweet liquid out of the mash um, that we're then going to add yeast to to ferment. So um, uh, what we're left with is a high protein, um, high fiber byproduct, which um, farmers love because for that reason, right? Like it, it really does give um, some diversity to um, particularly cows. Um, so their diet and grass. Resale market for that used mash? No, they're doing us a favor, Tim. You know, like, so we basically yeah. say, if you can pick it up, you can have it for free. They, you know, like if we were bigger, we could we could um, definitely think about um, monetizing it but at our scale that literally because otherwise it ends up in landfill and that would be disastrous so um, the byproduct goes to um, local farmers that then use it to raise their um, cows we when I first started we were small enough to work with a small um, um, sow house piggery and um, the deal was that I got two legs of pork that I could turn into salami, being Italian. Um, and so um, I would get uh, those legs of pork, make salami, and then enjoy whiskey that was with the salami that was made from the byproduct of the whiskey that made made it. So that was kind of nice. Uh, yeah, farm to table. I love that. Yeah. I lived off the grid for a short period of time in my life and we butchered animals and gardened and we're very much about turning turning the crops over and, and the soil and the compost like that. So I appreciate anyone that has a thought process that considers that type of stuff. Yeah, yeah. look, you know, um, and, and one of the things that we did uh, late last year actually was just change our, um, the format of our glass. So in Australia, this is an older bottle. You can see that there's got, uh, all of this beautiful base to it, which is yep. lovely, but um, the carbon footprint of that is huge, both in terms of production and also shipping around the world now, right? We're it's in, just heavier, right? It's heavier, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, that's my water carafe at home. Oh, yeah, there you go. Um, so we we um, moved to a different. I don't have one here yet, but um, they're on the water. Uh, to a, a lighter footprint bottle. Um, and that's taken out of each carton of, yeah, there's about a 25% weight saving in each carton of mm -hmm. glass, which is huge. So every step of the way we try and think about sustainability, it's not some sort of catchphrase, it's just part of, it's like safety, right? Like you don't kind of think about safety initiatives, they just, you just operate in a safe manner. And, you know, in the same way for us, sustainability is just kind of baked into our mindset. Um, you know, we want to have as light a touch on the planet as we possibly can. And um, whatever we can do to do that, you know, we, we, we chase after really quickly. Water's another one. You know, we live in a, basically an island desert, right, in Australia, um, a desert island. And so water's a very scarce resource. So we, um, we're we're approaching world's best in terms of a consumption of water at a distillery. So, you know, the next step up is 
you know, investing more capital than we've invested in anything just to treat the water, which we're not quite there at yet. But, you know, um, what we want to do to, to make to make a bottle of whiskey, you need 10 times as much water, right? Right. You're distilling it down. So you're keeping the alcohol and the rest of it's a byproduct. And so what do you do with the nine, the nine tenths is a big question. So um, again, a lot of that gets treated on site and reused for hose down water and, and um, for non, non uh, production based um, uses. Um, and then the rest of it then gets recycled and used on um, for irrigation around Melbourne. But um, the, the other, the other big challenge is um, oh, gone blank now. Oh, that's right. Um, chilling, cooling the, the condensers that we use to turn the vapor back into water. And so they're very energy intensive products. So, um, you know, we've got this kind of environment where to mash grains, you need hot uh, liquid and to, to distill vapor back into water, to turn vapor back into water, you need cooling stuff. So we basically use one to heat the other. So we bring cold water into the distillery, feed it through the condensers, and that then becomes the mashing water that we use for the next brew. So, um, you know, therefore minimizing consumption of energy and, and water as well. So processes are, are very important to minimize the cost because you, you have fine line. I mean, two cents on every bottle, it can make a huge profit margin for you as opposed to, you know, setting you back in the opposite. Yeah, so it's cost, it's de you know, um, some of these things, some of these things actually add two cents to a bottle, the right thing to do, right? You know, like um, just in terms of the footprint on the, on the planet. So some of them, a lot of them, in fact, do save you money. You're right, Tim, but some of them are like, like, you know, obviously less glass is going to be a, all the way through savings. But, um, but, uh, but, you know, some of the, the process engineering that we put in place is a significant investment for a distillery our size. But to me, it's just sort of the right way of, of going about doing things to, you know, recover as much energy as, energy as we can or not, not waste energy um, uh, um, and, and, you, you know, uh, make sure that we've got that lightest footprint as we possibly can. You guys offer uh, master classes in, in distillery as well? Yeah, so it's interesting. Like, for a very long time, when we started, we were actually in an old Qantas, our national airline maintenance hangar at an airport. Like um, it's it sort of like the airport's kind of like Boeing Field to SeaTac. Like it was the original airport in Melbourne, but then it was out, outgrown. And um, so uh, there's all of these wonderful old historic um, hangars out at the, at the airport that we converted into the distillery. And so early on, or was almost by design made it very unsexy because for me the home place of the spirit should be in the lounge room at home or in a bar or a restaurant not the place right because we didn't have the investment and in the infrastructure of say a wild turkey or maker's mark who you know maker's mark visitor experience in, in kentucky is amazing and so we we um we deliberately didn't do that but about four years ago we moved to about a mile from downtown Melbourne um, in a 40,000 square foot um, 
Swiss-cast uh, spot. <laughs> very big, nice. big, you know, and um, so we're one of the very few distilleries in the world to be like within a mile of a major city with everything done on site from Bali to bottle to bar. We've got our own bar at the distillery too. So you can kind of do a class bar and enjoy something to drink. It's um, a 300 person um, licensed bar in, in downtown Melbourne. Wow. So we, we um, when, you know, outside of COVID times, Thursdays, Fridays and Saturdays, we'd kind of run and Sundays we'd run uh, masterclasses on not only how whiskey's made, which can get a little bit like boring for lots of people that, you know, coming along as the plus yeah. one, but also um, how to drink whiskey too. Like just thinking about it from a modern perspective, not by the fireplace with a tweed jacket and a pipe in your mouth, but like, in a drink, you know, like let's take it for a walk in a cocktail or um, a highball and pair it with some interesting foods because, you know, Melbourne's kind of known for being a foodie kind of capital in the world. And, you know, we, we want to kind of have whiskey at the dinner table served with some of those iconic meals as well, you know, so at those iconic places. So cocktails are a big part of our culture. Mm. So a couple of questions before I let you go here, because I know you got to get on. Um, what do you miss the most about Australia being on this small little 11 mile island basically on Bambridge Island? Um, what do I miss most? The coffee that's very controversial, I know, but uh, I definitely miss the coffee in Melbourne. I have uh, to edit this portion out of the podcast, so you <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, I'm gonna be banished from every coffee house on the island. Um, I have to say that the guys that Pegasus look after me, so I, you know, it's as good as it's like as as close as a great Melbourne coffee as you're gonna get. But I do miss, I do miss um, Melbourne coffee. Obviously, my family and friends and the team there. We've got over thirty people um, at the distillery, so you know, um, not seeing them every day's been a bit of an adjustment. But there's just so much to be grateful for here. I mean, this island is amazing. The people are really generous and open have welcomed us with open arms. Um, we're at the foot of the Olympic mountains and close to my in-laws, which has been a, you know, like a blessing for the kids and, and my wife, obviously, and getting to, getting to spend lots of time with them has been fantastic. So as much as I miss all of that stuff, there's lots here that has been great as well. Yeah. And you got the man shed there. And I got my man shed. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, Lastly, how can people learn more about your, your product? And um, we were talking a little bit that uh, Total Wine has it in Silverdale right now. Total uh, Wine has it. Um, High Spirits in Paulsbo have got it. Do you have a um, subscription we, service or anything like that that people can grab it as well? Yeah, you can, you can, you can go onto um, our website, um, starwood.com.au, um, and... Uh, you'll you can register your email but i'll just give you my email address because we're locals and and you know neighbors it's just david at starwood.com.au and uh look me up and maybe when things get a little bit less uh isolated we can do an island masterclass. that would be awesome david vitale um i look forward to riding with you more often sipping some whiskey and uh building out our man sheds Let's do it. All right. Thanks for your time. Be kind. Peace, right. buddy. Cheers.